Heavenly Father, as we now listen, as we now listen for your voice, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There is a collection of children's books which goes by the title of A Series of Unfortunate Events. A Series of Unfortunate Events. While I've not read any of the books individually, nor have I seen the film that has come out in addition to it, I have, however, read the dust jacket of the first book. And it's very interesting reading. I think I got a flavour of the tone of the book. Let me give you a taster. This is what it says in the back cover of the book. Dear reader, I'm sorry to say that the book you are holding in your hand is extremely unpleasant. In this short book alone, the three youngsters encounter a greedy and repulsive villain, itchy clothing, a disastrous fire, a plot to steal their fortune, and cold porridge for breakfast. It is my sad duty to write down these unpleasant tales, but there is nothing stopping you from putting this book down at once and reading something happy, if you prefer that sort of thing. With all due respect, Lemony Snicket. Well, this week as I was reading a different book, the book of 1 Corinthians, in fact, the letter of 1 Corinthians, I kind of wondered if Paul was writing in 2008, whether or not he would have put something similar on the dust jacket of 1 Corinthians. Because the book of 1 Corinthians and the church which 1 Corinthians chronicles, it it, it could well be subtitled a series of unfortunate events. It seems as you turn from chapter 1 through the pages of the book that it is a case of unmitigated disaster. Just when you think things can't get any worse, you remember that this is Corinth, And they do. And indeed, if you don't mind reading unpleasant tales, I would suggest to you, not Lemony Snicket, but the Apostle Paul's 1 Corinthians for some bedtime reading. You will read in chapters 1 to 4 and discover a church in which there are personality cults, where groups of people are centered around different leaders in the church, and you think it can't get any worse. But then you come to chapter 5. And you discover a church in which there is flagrant immorality, openly tolerated. How terrible, you say to yourself, but you're compelled to read on, as you are with such books. And you come to chapter 6. And you discover that there is litigation in this church, that Christians are even dragging each other to court. Disgraceful, you say. What next? Well, chapter 7 to 10. And here you discover a catalogue of moral confusion and doctrinal chaos. And Paul has to untangle the web of such things as confusion over marriage and singleness, over the issue of food sacrifice to idols, and numerous issues there. And then as you come 
to the end of chapter 10, you think, surely there must be an upcoming somewhere. And then you remember that this is Corinth. And as you move over the brink of chapter 11, let me suggest Paul now addresses a new law in the church in Corinth. The beginning of this chapter, Paul begins to address some issues in the context of worship services. He first of all deals with gender roles and some problems they're having in that department, but then he turns to aberrations in the practice of the Lord's Supper. And it is my intention this evening to think about with you what Paul says, what Paul teaches in this regard. I really came this week simply to teach on the Lord's Supper per se, but when I came to this passage, I discovered that there's actually a context to it. There's actually a big issue tied in with it. And so let the chips fall where they may. Let the shoe fit where it happens to fit. But this is what Paul says. This is God's Word. And I invite you to reopen your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we consider it. Now, first of all, I want you to notice how Paul begins. How Paul begins that at the outset, Paul lays out a problem in the Corinthian church. That Paul is not teaching about communion or the Lord's Supper in a vacuum. But he is teaching against the background of a particular issue in this church. And what is the problem? Well, we can sum it up very succinctly as the Corinthian division. The Corinthian division. Paul may not be a medical doctor like his good friend Luke, but he's pretty good at identifying spiritual ailments. And Paul's basic diagnosis is very simple. It is also exceptionally shocking. Divisions. That's in verse 17. In the first place, I hear, this is a report that's come to Paul, that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And notice immediately the juxtaposition. Do you feel the tension of what Paul is saying here? When you come together, there are divisions among you. Do you feel the tension of that? See, this is not divisions between different churches. This is divisions within a church. It's interesting to note, not always interesting to know the Greek and Hebrew words, but it is interesting to note in this case that the Greek word is schismata, from which we get the word schism. And what is a schism? A schism is the idea of a fracture in something. A fracture in something that has been previously joined. And you know, the funny thing about a schism is that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a total rupture. Paul uh, indeed adds here that there are divisions among them. Not out with them, not outside them. Not divisions with the little church down the road and around the corner. But divisions in their midst. One commentator points out, therefore, that there's a difference between a schism and a sect. A sect is, by definition, something that is totally cut off from the mainstream. A sect is something that 
goes its own way, that goes away, that lives outside and beyond. But not a schism. A schism is an inside job, so that in Paul's terms, you can actually have a group of people gathered together, rather like this evening, and yet there be divisions, schisms, in their very midst. Together, but not really together. You say that's a terrible thing. Aren't schisms always terrible? You hear people say that kind of thing, don't you? This is a problem in the church. There's so many divisions. A few years ago, not long after I started at the chapel, I preached a sermon on John 17 on unity, and somebody sent a letter, an anonymous letter, to me and uh, said they wouldn't be coming back to this church or any church like it. And they said the problem with churches like your church and churches like yours in your tradition is there's so many divisions. Look at all the thousands of denominations. Maybe to some extent they had a point. But it's interesting to note what Paul says here. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in verse 19, Paul actually says, schisms aren't always a bad thing. The Bible doesn't always fit into our little box, does it? In verse 19, he says, there have to be or must be differences among you. And if we say, Paul, why on earth must there be divisions? Paul goes on to answer, to show which of you has God's approval. I think what Paul is saying is this, that as bad as schisms can be, in fact, they are divinely permitted by God in order to highlight those who are approved by Him or not, as the case may be. You see, schisms can separate out the sheep from the goats. Uh, Conflicts can divide between the carnal and the Christian, the orthodox and the heretic. Schisms aren't always bad. They're always messy, but they aren't always bad. A very obvious example from church history, of course, would be the Protestant Reformation. Now, there was a schism within a church, if ever you had a schism within a church. But let me ask you this question. Was the Reformation a good thing or a bad thing? Bad schism? That Martin Luther led a group of Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming Christians to recapture the central truths of the gospel? The truths of grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, on the basis of the Bible alone, to the glory of God alone. I think that was a good thing, do you? And so Paul says, I I can see up front that differences sometimes need to happen. Nevertheless, I think Paul infers here, beware, beware. Because, you know, it could just be the case that as the divisions separate people out, that it will become clear that you guys are not approved. That God doesn't approve of you. Indeed, Paul says in verse 17 that he has no praise for them. Is this a church with God's approval? Paul also says in the same verse that when they meet together, their church services are so ungodly, so unholy, so unchristian, that they actually do more harm than good. Can you imagine that? that you don't leave the service better off, but worse off. 
that it actually would be the case in this instance that you would have been better staying in your bed. So negative is the experience. And some of you perhaps have had that experience. I hope not, but some of you will have had that experience at church from time to time. Now just when you think it can't get any worse, again you remember that this is Corinth and it does get worse. Because Paul, from giving the general diagnosis, I think now pinpoints a specific symptom, a specific instance of division. And it's in a devastating area. It is schism at the Lord's Supper. You see, if you have a division with someone, if there's some difference that you have, let's say with another Christian, you cannot compartmentalize that and keep that out with the most precious things that you do as a church. You bring it in with you. It comes even to the Lord's table. That's what was happening in the church in Corinth. Now, we've got to get a little bit of background here uh, to understand just what Paul is saying because the, the six circumstances in which communion was performed was a little bit different in the first century. In the immediate decades following the death of Jesus, it seems that the common practice was to marry together the Lord's Supper itself, with another meal. And this other meal was a fellowship meal. It was sometimes known as the love feast or the agape meal. And, and the idea of this, probably because many people in the church were poor at this time, maybe up to half or two-thirds were below the poverty line, that you would come together for a fellowship meal and therefore everyone would get well fed very different from the way, of course, that we do it today. I don't know, do you have your dinner before you come to the service or after the service? But, you know, we don't do it here, in the service. Uh, this is Edinburgh. You've had your tea then, you know. It's that kind of thing. So we need to get in the mindset of, of what is happening here. And Paul says, within the context of this whole feast, of the fellowship meal, first of all, which culminates in the finale of communion, the whole thing is a disgrace. It is ruptured by divisions. Paul gives two examples which are so uh, straightforward and just so damning. First of all, he says, in your meetings, there is no waiting for each other. Verse 21 literally says, everyone has their own meal. In other words, whenever people got there, they just got started. Regardless of who else was there or not. And actually, there's even more to this than meets the eye. Because you see, in these days, most of the poorer people had to work on the weekends. I mean, just think about a slave, for example. Slaves don't get Saturday and Sunday off. And so if the communion service was in the early evening, then the slaves would pitch up later than the richer people who had money and therefore had leisure time. And so what happened was that people with more money would turn up first and they would start eating their food there and then without waiting on the poorer folks. And so actually what you had was, was a division, a, a kind of a clique, an elitist rich group who were not waiting on the rest of people. There's no waiting. And then Paul goes on secondly, and he says there's no sharing. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Some people have tons of food, and therefore are given to gluttony and drunkenness even. 
And other people have little food. So there's this group, in, just think of how shambolic and ridiculous this is. There's this group over at one wing of the church, and they're tucking into a nice four-course meal with lots of wine. And then there's this other group over in the other wing, and they've got a little bit of bread and water because they can't afford much. See, this is not a potluck supper, you know, where we all bring little or much and we just all tuck in. No sharing. No waiting. No unity. Hardly a context for coming to communion, is it? Hardly a context for coming to communion. But let me ask you a question. Let me ask you something. Can it be the context? Can't it be the context? You say, not surely to the same extremity. Granted, praise God, we maybe aren't doing this kind of ostensible, ridiculous stuff. But is not division at some level a reality in every church? Is division not a reality in every situation where there are relationships between sinful people? I would be very surprised this evening if there was not some schisms here in this body. Let me prod a little bit. Schisms along the line of background, let's see. Surely not, surely not in Charlotte Chapel. And then we think of the person we just body swerved in the hall coming up the stairs. Or we think about the person who in the lounge when we're having tea and coffee we kind of body swerve. Because they come from a different background from us. We find it difficult speaking with them. Or schisms because of different theological persuasions. Maybe on secondary matters. Oh, how this goes on within some churches. So we don't speak to that person much. Because of where they're coming from. On a secondary, non-essential matter. Or schisms, how about this? Schisms because of preferences. I heard it, someone said this week, and I agreed with it totally, Christians today tend to get more wound up over issues of preference than over issues of principle. Isn't that true? You come to the church meeting, and you say, we're going to alter something in the doctrinal statement. And people say, what's the doctrinal statement? And then you suggest something preferential. There's going to be some alteration to musical style. Something architectural, you know, the color of the curtains. And people disagree over this kind of stuff, don't they? Ferociously. And they divide over it. And sometimes years later, they're still divided because of the argument about the organ or whatever. You may be divided from some people here tonight because they like a different musical style from you. That's just reality. Because they lift their hands when they sing. Or because they don't lift their hands when they sing. How about generational divisions? You know, it's great that we're in a church here that has a spread of ages. But let me ask you a question. Do we have a mix? Our culture doesn't have a mix of ages. Great to have a spread. Do we have a mix? I'm only asking the questions. I'm not giving you the answers. But maybe we can all answer this one. Do we have an outright disagreement with somebody here? 
Somebody in this building this evening. Is there somebody tonight who we have not talked to for a long time? Personality clash. Something that some instance that happened. Not resolved. And maybe we sit in this building at this table which represents the grace and love and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ and we're actually not speaking to X over there. There's distance between us and him or her. We need to search our hearts on these things. All of us do. And perhaps not too hard to see if there are some relationships that are not what they should be. There were issues in this church relating to divisions. This is what Paul's addressing. I was surprised in a way to come to it this week. But Paul noticed this. He moves on from defining the problem. Paul never just defines problems to define problems. He does it so that he can work out the solution. And Paul's solution is to really recapture the focus of what this service is meant to be about. The second heading is the Lord's Institution. This uh, is a part of our uh, communion feast very often, isn't it? Verses 23 to 26, some beautiful words. Uh, But you know, uh, this was not written so that we would have something nice to read at communion services. Maybe the Holy Spirit had that as a secondary purpose. But for Paul, these verses had the distinct purpose to refocus the Corinthians on what this was to be about. And what Paul says, in effect, is, and it's very simple, he says it's about Jesus. That this table is not to be about conflicts, but about Christ. Not about the divisions between you and somebody else, but about the death of Jesus that destroyed all division between you and God and between you and anyone else. Paul says, you seem to have forgotten this, so let me take you a trip down memory lane. He says, let me remind you of some essential facts of the Lord's Supper. And by the way, if you think you know these, maybe you need to be reminded of them, as I do. And Paul says, I have three things for you regarding this event that will underline the preciousness and the purpose of the Lord's Supper. First of all, he says, this meal originates from Jesus It originates from Him. You know, the Lord's Supper has been practiced in this church for 200 years. But do you know it is not a tradition of Charlotte Chapel merely? It is not the idea of the elders. It is not the idea of the pastor. And it's not even the idea of the Apostle Paul. Paul himself says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. Jesus initiated this feast. Jesus set it in place. Jesus set it up. And interesting too, notice what Paul also says. Not only did he institute it, but he ensured that the institution would be remembered. He safeguarded the transmission of the facts to an apostle named Paul. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord, that's Jesus, what I also passed on to you. That's how serious Jesus is that you and I know what this feast is about. He passed on the information to the Apostle Paul, who in turn passed on the information to the Corinthian church, 
And 2,000 years later, it is now being passed on to us. Jesus is behind this. It originates from him. And Paul says, yet you scorn it. The Lord's Supper originates from Jesus. Second essential fact, he says, and it represents Jesus. There's the focus that I'm talking about. It represents him. It's about him. Seems to me, as, as I was reading this, in the context of the flow of the passage, that this really is where the emphasis lies in the words. The Lord Jesus recounts Paul on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Later on, this is the sin that Paul talks about at the end of the chapter. It is not recognizing the body and blood of who? The Lord. Because you see, this feast represents Christ. It symbolizes Him in a very particular way, of course, in His death. The body that is given and the blood that is shed on the cross. Now, in saying this, and this is not incidental, let me also make clear that Jesus is not saying, as the Roman Catholic Church has suggested, that the bread and wine are therefore literally his body and blood. In other words, that when we partake tonight of the, of the bread and wine, Jesus is not saying that this is in a literal sense his blood and his body that we're feeding upon. And let me just point out one reason why that, I think, is not correct. This would not have made sense in the original context. The disciples would surely have not understood Jesus' saying in this situation that the bread and the, and the wine was his physical body and blood. I mean, Jesus is standing there right in front of them, flesh and blood. And he's holding a bit of bread. Do they believe that the bread is a physical extension of his physical body? Or when he says the cup is the new covenant in my, in my blood, do they believe that some of Jesus' blood is actually in the cup? Jesus' blood is running through his veins at the point when he says this. Clearly they would have understood that Jesus is speaking as he often did in a figurative sense. I quite enjoyed the humor of one commentator who pointed out that Jesus on another occasion also said, I am the door. And when he said that, he meant that he was the entrance through which people could come and receive eternal life. He didn't mean that he literally was a mahogany door. Jesus is saying this bread symbolizes, it pictures, it is an image to bring to your mind my body. That this blood represents, it symbolizes, it's an image that brings to mind my blood, my real body and blood which were sacrificed for you. It originates from Jesus, so it's precious. It, it represents Jesus, so it's precious. And it is, Paul goes on to say, to be, or Jesus goes on to say, to be remembered by the church in verses 24 and 25. Did you notice that with both the bread and the cup, the repeated phrase comes, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. If you go to Luke's Gospel and look at his account, 
it comes also twice. In remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. It's very clear what the main practice should be as we come to communion according to Jesus. You say, I'm new to this. What, what am I meant to do when they pass this stuff around? Just, just eat the bread? Just, just drink the cup? More than that, says Jesus. You are to remember their significance in my dying for you. Just meditate for a few moments on the way that Jesus says this. He speaks about the bread which is given for you. Did you notice that? The bread which is given for you. Verse 24. Do you know that Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, I'm speaking to you for a moment. Do you know that Jesus Christ came all the way from heaven to earth? He was a true bread that came down from heaven. That he was rejected, ridiculed, beaten, nailed to a cross. And that he did that. Oh, there's something else. He also drank the cup of God's wrath. Did you notice the word used there is not wine. It doesn't say bread and wine. It says the bread and the cup. The associations of the cup for a Jewish person would have been the cup of God's wrath and judgment. Jesus drank that too. And you know that Jesus did all of that for you. It's beautiful, isn't it? So that we can say with the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Let me step back for a second. Can you say that this evening? Can you look into your heart and say from the bottom of a grateful heart, Jesus died for me? To save me from a loss, godless, appalling eternity. That on the cross he cleansed me from my sin for all the the, the rubbish that I've done. And that he's established a new relationship in his blood with God forever. If you're not a Christian this evening, no doubt you cannot say that. But you could be a Christian tonight. You could become one. Tonight, you could trust in Jesus' death for you. And you could turn away from the sin for which Jesus died and be forgiven. And then you could, for the rest of your earthly life, come again and again to remember it. You know, the cross of Jesus is not just something for unbelievers. Of course, it's for them. It is for Christians. We don't move on from the cross. We don't walk away from the cross. We linger by the cross. And we remember Jesus until, here's when it finishes, until he comes. Interesting too, that the word that Paul uses to describe what the emblems do as we come is that it it preaches. Paul actually says that they proclaim the Lord's death till we come. It's the same word in the New Testament for preach. The Lord's Supper is a kind of preaching. And every time we hear the words of institution, every time we see the emblems, every time we partake of them, they preach to us. And they only ever preach the same message, always and only, Christ and Him crucified. Jesus died for me. And Jesus died for that brother or sister that I'm not speaking to. 
But Jesus died for me, that's true. You know how tragic it is or it would be if by our issues with others we drowned out the preaching of the cross. I was at a funeral a few weeks ago and it was the most horrendous weather I've ever experienced at a funeral. There was sideways rain. The wind was unbelievably noisy. And the preacher at the gravesite was, was literally shouting. And we couldn't hear him. Couldn't hear him. So it could be that distortion in our relationships are just drowning out the noise of the grace of the cross as we come tonight. And if that is the case, Paul says, you need to do something about it. You need to do something urgently about it. This leads to our third and final point, the Corinthian division, the Lord's institution, but lastly, Paul's application. Usually in a sermon passage, uh, the preacher does the interpretation of the text, tries to understand what it means, but the hardest part often is trying to work out the application. How does it apply to people's lives? I just love Paul here. He should do this with every text because he gives us the application. He's so earnest that they change their ways that he spells it out. And he gives two basic commands. We'll spend most of the time on the first one. He says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. It's a great verse, sis, but it's one of the most misunderstood verses in the whole of the Bible. Many people read this verse and they think that it is calling us to examine and identify our inherent human sinfulness. They read it in an individualistic way. And the essence says, well, have I done any personal private sins this week? Or public sins? That's me, I'm out. Can't come to this table this week because news, I'm a sinner. And then they look at the uh, 27th verse. They read the word unworthy. It just jumps off the page at them. And they say, oh, this just backs it up. Uh, Those of an unworthy character can't come to this table. Let me just say, if that is the right interpretation of this verse... None of us should ever come and participate in this. None of us. We would never take communion. Is there anybody here worthy? Actually, it's not even the adjective unworthy that Paul uses. It's not an adjective. Which would be describing character, but it's it's just simply not what it is. The NIV catches it quite well here. Listen to what Paul carefully says. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy, and here's the stress, manner. It's not speaking of the unworthiness of someone's character, but about the practice of the Lord's Supper. Do you hear the the distinction and difference between that? And what might Paul be referring to when he says that there's an unworthy manner in which you can take this? Well, surely in the context, Paul would be referring to the divisions And the problem in their interpersonal relationships. Paul's saying, examine yourself to see what is going on there. Examine yourself long enough to see that there's huge schisms in the church. This is not about individual sinfulness. It is, in the context, 
about interpersonal relationships. And Paul says, therefore, examine yourselves to see if there are attitudes in your heart or actions worked out in your relationships that would really make it an unworthy manner of coming to worship. Because there's just things that are not right between you and others. I'll just be blunt about this this evening. This means that some of us perhaps shouldn't eat this tonight. Tonight. This is what Paul's saying, isn't it? Right? I mean, sometimes the application is so obvious it's staring us in the face and goes over the head. Some of us shouldn't eat this tonight, perhaps. Not because we're, we're more unworthy than anyone else. We're all unworthy. But because it would be an unworthy manner. Because there's relationship issues we need to sort out before we come again to this place of grace. Paul gives us a warning here. He says that we must judge ourselves so that the Lord will not need to judge us. That's the best way to do it, isn't it? Examine yourself. Judge yourself. Sort it out. Then the Lord's discipline won't need to come upon you. Of course, the Christian cannot be condemned. And Paul points this out. The Old Testament uh, uh, the old uh, King James translation was a little unhelpful here because it used to be too strong a word. It talked about the believer being damned. That's not, really, that's not the word. The word is judge. Paul specifically contrasts the believer's discipline, judgment, over and against the condemnation of the world. Paul says the reason God judges you, in this case, he says some of you have fallen ill. Some people have even died prematurely because of the Lord's judgment. And the reason is this, to keep you from being condemned for eternity. That's an encouragement. It's a hard encouragement, but it's an encouragement. One of the uh, commentators says, It is possible for the saints to be fit for heaven in Christ, but not be fitted to remain on the earth in testimony. God will discipline his church if we will not discipline ourselves. So Paul says, examine yourself. And secondly, he says, a lovely phrase, I think. (laughs) They weren't waiting on each other, were they? They weren't sharing. And Paul says, wait for each other. And I think that that suggests not only sort of restitution in the present, but also an ongoing commitment to the relationship. It's easy to say a token sorry to somebody, isn't it? It's another thing to change your attitude and actions for the future. Paul says, from now on, wait for each other. Do it differently. Stamp out the schism. Don't dig yourself into the same hole. In conclusion, I wonder if there's something we need to change. Something we need to put right. Praise God. Jesus has put our sins right. But it doesn't mean that there's not something wrong in some relationships that we have. It's funny, when you have these open themes... I'm not really sure why I preached on this tonight. Fits in with the uh, communion service, of course, and lots of instructive things that I've learned from it and been challenged by it. But I'm still not quite sure why I preached on it. Unless there are some differences that need to be put right. And if that's the case, put them right. For your sake, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of this church, 
and for the sake of the Lord's Supper. Because when we get to this, we want to focus only on this. Surely it is precious enough for that, brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray now that you will show each of us what our appropriate response should be. Father, we thank you that your word never skirts the issues. And Lord, we felt the challenge of it tonight. Maybe some of us even more than others. Help us not to resist your word sinfully. Help us, Lord, not to be proud So often, Lord, that bars us from sorting things out. May we be a church that is one in spirit and in purpose, with all our diversity. May there not be differences among us. And we pray that as we come to your table now, that you, by your spirit, will make these symbols real. May they preach the death of Jesus. Amen.